We're going to be in the book of Philippians, and today we're at verses 10 through 13 of chapter 4. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And it struck me as I was thinking on that, that you really can't have one without the other. Because without godliness, you're not going to have contentment. And if you're not content, then, well, you don't have godliness. You have both of them, it is great gain. A farmer, a farmer had lived on the same small farm all his life. He desperately craved for change. He decided to sell the old home place and buy another farm, one larger and more to his liking. He listed the farm with a local realtor. Several days later, the farmer read an ad in the local newspaper describing the farm of his dreams. It read, Beautiful farmhouse, ideal location, Excellent barn, good pasture, fertile soil, up-to-date equipment, well-bred stock. Near town, church, and school. Good neighbors. The farmer immediately called his realtor and said, I've been looking for a place like this all my life. Could you arrange an appointment for me to see it? You already know the end of this, don't you? (laughs) You can see it coming, right? The realtor responded, that's the ad for your property. (laughs) Are you really sure you want to sell it? So, sometimes we are where we ought to be, but we don't realize it. We don't appreciate the things that we have. Um, Charles Spurgeon, in his uh, devotional morning and evening, wrote... um, Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to men as thorns are to the soil. We need not sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to earth. And so we need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. For instance, have any of you ever had to teach your children to complain? You never have to give that lesson, do you? No one had to teach us, we naturally, that's his point. But the precious things of earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be a garden and a gardener's care. Now, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then we must be specially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in us. Discontentment is like our default setting. But this passage teaches us about contentment through Christ. And verses 10 through 13 show us how 
to develop a godly contentment no matter what the circumstance situation. So first of all, verse 10, appreciate what you have. Verse 10 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Appreciate what you have. Sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until we lose it. I wonder if Adam and Eve ever felt that way. They, they lived in paradise, but the deceiver came in and sowed a seed of discontentment dis, uh, and a seed of doubt in them. Sure, God said you can eat all these trees of the garden, you can have whatever you want, anything. Yes, you live in paradise, but he also put that one tree and said, you can't eat that. God is withholding something for, from you. In fact, Satan said to Eve, God knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like him. Now that was Satan's very own downfall. He wanted to be like God. He says, I will exalt my throne to that of the most high God. And now he carries that same pernicious thought to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. So instead of being content with being in the Garden of Eden, having everything perfect, they wanted more. It has been the downfall of man ever since. They did not appreciate what they had. And part of our problem is not appreciating what we have. The most telling sign of contentment is a thankful heart. Gratitude and contentment go together. They're, they're intertwined. Have you ever notice a person who is, is a thankful, a gracious person who's full of gratitude? You don't hear them at the same time complaining. So appreciate what you have, first of all, by rejoicing in the Lord. And Paul writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Uh, Paul didn't say, I rejoiced in the circumstances, but I rejoice in the Lord. See, the circumstances change, but the Lord is immutable. He does not change. He is always perfect. He's always loving you perfectly. He's always gracious and kind. Circumstances may be bad, or good, but the Lord is always perfect. Circumstances are external to us and impersonal to us, but the Lord is intensely personal to us. A God who says that He loves you with an everlasting love. So Paul doesn't say, I, I rejoice in my circumstances, but I Rejoice in the Lord despite my circumstances. Remember where Paul is here. As he's writing this, he's in prison in Rome. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. It is uh, horrible conditions. And yet, in the circumstance, he's saying, I rejoice in the Lord. 
Not only does he rejoice in the Lord, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Not just saying, okay, you know, I, I guess it's all right. I can get through. I'm, I'm content. Content isn't just accepting. Content is rejoicing that the Lord is in control. So biblical contentment is not based on how things are going or how we're doing, but Paul says he is rejoicing in the Lord, the Lord of his circumstances. If we can see God as being truly in control of all of our life, he reigns over every circumstance of our life. Once we see that, we grasp that, then our focus is no longer on the circumstances that are mulling around in our life, but the Lord over the circumstance, and our trust is in Him. We rejoice in Him that He's over our circumstances. And Paul here also is rejoicing as he remembers the kindness of these Philippian believers. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. So he's remembering their kindness. Your care for me has flourished again. Your version may say something like, your care has uh, uh, revived again. Um, your concern is revi revived. The word that's translated flourished or revived is a word that is taken from horticulture and referred to perennial flowers. Uh, it means Literally, the word means to bloom again. Your, your concern, your care for me has, has bloomed again like a perennial flower. It seems dormant for a while. And then in the spring, it, there it comes up again. And so their care for him had been, in a sense, dormant for a while. They lacked opportunity, he says. But now it has bloomed again. It has flourished again. And... He is recognizing that and, and thanking them for it. To Paul, it was like a garden full of blessing. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect garden and it wasn't enough. And Paul is living in chains and it has become to him like a garden. And he is rejoicing. By the way, Paul knew that all along, they had wanted to send aid. He recognized that in them, though you surely did care. It wasn't because they didn't care, but they lacked opportunity. So he, he's letting them know, basically, I understand why you were not able to send something before this time. And we may get a glimpse into why this is so in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is talking about giving and he, said, he gives the example of the, those from this Macedonia, which is where Philippi and Thessalonica, some of those churches are, that they were in, out of their deep poverty, they gave to the church at Jerusalem. And so they were at, at this time in very deep poverty, perhaps because of their own persecution there. But now, at last, they, have, they are able to send a gift to Paul, he is grateful for it. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And 
he is thanking them. So be gracious and be grateful. Uh, Secondly, verse 11, not only appreciate what you have, but apply what you've learned. Let's read verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state or whatever condition, circumstance I am to be content. Paul's rejoicing was not based on a need being met. The reason he's rejoicing in verse 10 isn't because a need was met. He is rejoicing with them for their gift, but not because it met a need. Why is he rejoicing? Well, we'll see more of this verse next week, uh, but look down at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. In other words, the great blessing in all this, not only does it minister to me, but it abounds to fruit for you God is going to honor your gift. God is going to bless you. It does something for you. Uh, He would have been content without the gift because he's going to say, no matter what my situation, I've learned to be content. But he is glad for the gift because what it means for them, what it does for them. So even in receiving the gift, he is thinking more of others than himself. Not that I speak in regard to need. Not because I need it. For I have learned. I have learned. In whatever state I'm in to be content. And the, uh, the word and the verb form that he uses here for learned. Uh, means to learn from experience over time. To learn from experience over time. Not by learning by studying a book or something like this, but learning by experience over time, like someone who's trying to learn to play the piano. You don't sit down at it and open the book and immediately play. You have to practice and practice and practice and develop that skill. You learn through experience over time. That's the kind of learning that he's talking about here. He has learned this. But it didn't come naturally. It didn't come automatically. It wasn't just by reading something. He learned it through experience over time. He he applied what he was learning, the truths he was learning, to a situation as he experienced them in life. He didn't get it automatically, which means that we don't get it automatically either. If Paul had to learn how to be content over time, then so do we. This is not something that's natural to us. In fact, it's unnatural for us to be content. Our default setting is being discontent, being self-focused. But it's something that we learn over time. We have to commit ourselves to the process and learning. And notice that It isn't just contentment that Paul learned. See, this is the hard part. It's not just contentment, but in whatever circumstance I'm in, I've learned to be content. 
That's where it gets hard, right? I mean, there's a lot of circumstances we can be content in. Maybe they're really good ones, and of course we will, or maybe they're just kind of neutral and it's easy to be content. But when things are really hard, that's when it's difficult to be content. So he says, I've learned to be content no matter what is happening. But it is learned. One author wrote, Christ-centered contentment is not pre-installed in our hearts like a software program preloaded into a new computer. You have to add it to the programming. Contentment is not gained externally. It is grown internally. And we have a responsibility to learn it. You're not content simply by being born again. But by being born again, you can start the process of learning how to be content as we learn more and more to trust in the good graces of our Lord and of our Heavenly Father's care for us. And keep in mind that the biblical idea of learning uh, is never related simply to learning facts or even learning truth. The biblical idea of learning something is applying the truth. That um, as we, we learn the truth and we start living it out, translates the knowledge of something into wisdom. So like the book of Proverbs describes wisdom, uh, and the word there means skill for living. It's for we learn these biblical principles, and when we put them into practice, that is wisdom. When we obey them, what God says. So the opposite of wisdom is not stupidity. The opposite of wisdom is disobedience. So Paul is saying he's, he's learning these things through the circumstances of his life, how to be content. Um. True contentment is unnatural to us. And I, I at least find some comfort in this. If Paul had to learn it, then no wonder it's taking me so long. But it's a, it's a lifelong process to keep learning to be content. Uh, one pastor wrote that he wanted to teach his children contentment and also financial stewardship. So he taught them the envelope system. He said, when we gave them an allowance, they would put it in envelopes labeled give, save, spend, or whatever. He writes, I I thought I was teaching them that life was actually more than money. And I thought they were getting it until one afternoon I came home from work and I had a Band-Aid on my arm. My daughter, who at the time was a bright second grader, asked me, why do you have that Band-Aid on your arm? I didn't want to alarm her, but thought that she would certainly be old enough to get an explanation. I told her that I had gotten a medical exam that day so that I could buy a life insurance policy. She asked, what's a life insurance policy? I explained, well... Daddy loves you so much and loves the family so much. If anything were to happen to me, 
he would provide $250,000. Her eyes got really wide. I, I knew she was worried until she looked up at me and said, A piece? <laughs> Let's get on with it, Dad. And this pastor wrote, I'm not sure the right lessons we're getting through. Contentment is not a gift. It's a lesson to be learned. It's an assignment. It's something you fight for as you wage war against the temptation to reach for more, to envy others, to fixate on the uncomfortable and the inconvenient and sometimes the downright wrong circumstances that surround you. So contentment is the art of practicing the habit of holding on to things of this world with a light touch and instead having a firm grip on the grace of God which has been lavished on us. It is His grace, it's His strength, it's in Him that we find contentment and fulfillment, not in the things of earth. So appreciate what you have, apply what you have learned, and third, accept wherever you are. Verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. To be abased means to be, to be brought low, to be in impoverished circumstances in need, to be abased. To abound means to have a lot, plenty, overflowing I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. Everywhere and in all things. Again, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. Except where you are. Notice that Paul elaborates on what he says he has learned. And this is the up and downs of his life. And there were times when he was abased and times when he abounded and times when he was full, times when he was hungry, times when things are going well and times when he suffered. He learned to be content no matter what the circumstance was. Wherever God had him at time. So Paul moves us through the circumstances in his life which taught him contentment. I just want to look at an example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 4 and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. Second Corinthians four seven, talking about how God shines through, even though Satan tries to blind the minds of those who won't see the the gospel shines through to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse six and verse seven says, "But but we have this treasure in earthen vessels." 
The treasure is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We have that treasure of the gospel in, inside of us, and we're just clay pots. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So we have the supreme privilege of being used by God in this, the, the treasure of the gospel. But it comes at a price sometimes. And so he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So skip down to uh, verse 15. For all these things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So, Paul said, I and others like me, Timothy and Silas and Barnabas, and we are going through these things. It is for you that, that grace, having spread through the many, as many people receive the grace of God and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Ultimately, it's all about God's glory. So he said, Yes, you're going through these things. Some of them are very hard. But guess what? People are being saved, and in the end, God is being glorified. And so it's worth it. Therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. This is how we started in verse 1 of the same chapter. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have, we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now he gets back to that thought again in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Because it's all for God's glory. It's for the gospel of, in other people's lives. Even though our, our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Yes, it's, it's true. We may be suffering all these things externally. They can do whatever they want to the body, but the inner man is being renewed they can't touch that for our light affliction which is but for a moment or our momentary light affliction that's what he calls this being hard pressed perplexed persecuted struck down our momentary light affliction is is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's, there may be some hard things in our lives, things which are tearing at us, things which are very hard to endure, but those very things are working in us something for eternity, a glory that's going to last forever. This is temporary. That is forever. And it is working that in us this eternal weight of glory that we will never understand on this, in this life, it awaits the life to come. 
And here's the secret of how to do this, verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, that is the external circumstances, the situations that we're in, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So it's the difference of having your focus on the circumstances around you that, which are temporary. They may be very difficult ones, very trying circumstances. But instead of focusing on that, seeing beyond that to the Lord of your circumstances and putting your trust there, knowing that he does all things well. He's going to work it all out in the end. He's working all things together for your good. He has loved you with an eternal love. He's never going to let you down. He's going to safely bring you home. He's going to bless you for eternity. Knowing those things, securing your mind, your heart on those truths instead of the circumstances. That's where contentment comes in. So, except wherever you are, back to Philippians chapter 4. So he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul learned and we need to learn that the Christian life is not a series of accidents, of things which happen to us, but a series of assignments, a series of appointments from God, and He is in control of it all. The one constant in all this is God and His faithfulness, no matter what our circumstance. So Paul said, I have learned to be content no matter what is happening. And then Finally, appropriate the strength of Christ. Appreciate what you have. Apply what you've learned. Accept where you are. And appropriate the strength of Christ. Why did I use the word appropriate? Appropriate? Because it starts with A and the other three did. So the last one had to. <laughs> appropriate the strength of Christ. That means lay hold of the strength of Christ. Make it your own. Appropriate. Like that. Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is one of the most quoted, embroidered, calligraphied, needle-pointed, scrapbooked, bumper-stickered verses in the whole Bible. Almost everyone knows this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But most often, it is taken out of context. What does he mean, I can do all things? So, I actually saw this one time embroidered on the, the robe, back robe of a boxer. I was just switching channels. He had just pummeled someone to near death, the guy's still laying on the mat, and he goes over to his corner, and his, uh, what's the guy you call it that helps him? His trainer. Hands him his robe, so he puts his robe on, and sure enough, on the back of it, 
Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't think that's what God had in mind. <laughs> so, what do we mean by all things? Um, it means not that I can do everything I want to do, not everything I set my mind to, but I can do anything and everything God calls me to. I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. So, just a translation note here, I can do all things through Christ. Your version may say, I can do all things through Him instead of Christ. So I did some research on this. The older Greek versions, Greek text, simply had the word Him here. I can do all things through Him. Apparently, about a hundred years after the earliest Greek text, uh, someone decided to add the word Christ here instead of him to clarify who the him is. Uh, and, and that kind of stuck because that group of manuscripts became part of uh, the majority text, what's called the, the most of the Greek texts were taken from this, which is where the King James Version came from. And verse many people learned was from the King James, I can do all things through Christ. Technically, the earliest and best manuscripts say, I can do all things through him. However, every Bible scholar I checked said, it's talking about Christ, even though it says him. So I guess it doesn't matter in the long run. I just want to let you know in case your version says him, don't fret about it, that's what it originally said, but it does refer to Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what all things? And this is where the context is king. So often we rely on the context to interpret, to correctly interpret what a passage is talking about. And that is the case here. What has Paul just said? Especially verse 11 and 12. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in, doesn't matter whatever state, I, I have learned to be content. I know how to be abased, to abound everywhere and in all things. There's his all things that he could do. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and suffer need. I can do all things, the all things he's talking about here in verse 13 is the all things he talked about in verse 12. That is, no matter what the circumstance, whether it's good or bad, high or low, all those things, all those circumstances, in any of them I have learned to be content. Well, how can I be content? I've already found my, in my own life that I can't be content in all those circumstances. I'm too easily discontented when things don't go my way or how I think they ought to be. So how can I be content? This is what Paul is saying. Here's how he and I and you can be content. It is through Christ. It's through him. 
who strengthens you. You cannot do it. It's good to recognize that, acknowledge it, fess it up. You can't, but he can. He will give you the strength, his strength to be content in all things, no matter what is happening in your life. So what this whole passage is about, contentment in Christ. We can do everything and anything that God calls us to as we rely on the strength of Christ. So whatever you're facing this week, whether it's a a marriage situation or an issue at work or relationship difficulty or maybe some fear that you have, some apprehension, maybe additional pressure that's in your life, Whatever your circumstance, you can be content. In fact, you can rejoice in the Lord knowing that you draw your strength from Him and remembering that He's in control over all those things. But you can be content and have the right attitude also if you get a promotion this week. Something goes really well for you this week. You get some kind of extra provision. You can handle that well if you have a great success this week. You see, I think many of us, when things are going bad, we know to turn to the Lord, don't we? And we seek His strength. It's when things are going exceptionally well, we tend to be prideful. And so Paul is talking about not just when I'm abased, but when I abound. Not just when I'm um, hungry, but when I'm full. When I feel defeated, when I feel victorious. I can handle victory. I can handle it without being prideful, without it destroying me through Christ who strengthens me. And I can handle the hard circumstances as well through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ is a saying as saying I can do nothing without him. And didn't Jesus say that in John 15, the parable of the vine, vine dresser? Without me you can do nothing. But he says if you abide in me, if I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit to the glory of God. So the first step is our relationship to Christ, to abide in Him, without which you will never be satisfied. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this world is never going to satisfy you. Nothing is ever going to make you content. So the first step is knowing Him. Jesus came to give us that relationship with Him. A relationship we could never have on our own, never figure Him out. But He came to die for our sins so that anyone who puts their trust in Him will be saved forever. And I just want to let you know if you have any questions about that, if you want to give your life to Christ, you want to know what it means to be saved, please 
talk to me uh, later. I'd be glad to talk to you anytime about how you can do that. And so it starts with knowing Christ and then learning, as Paul did, learning to trust him in every circumstance. And I close with this. The great missionary explorer David Livingston served in Africa from 1840 to his death in 1873. He was eager to travel after a while into the uncharted lands of Central Africa to preach the gospel there as well. And so they started moving in that direction from um, Eastern Africa where he started to moving towards Central Africa and on one occasion, he arrived at the edge of a large territory that was ruled by a tribal chieftain there in Central Africa. According to tradition, the chief would come out to meet him. And after their meeting, if all went well, Livingstone would be free to travel throughout the territory, but only after an exchange was made. According to custom, the chief would choose any item of Livingstone's personal property that caught his fancy and keep it for himself while giving the missionary something of his own in return. Livingstone had few possessions with him, but at their encounter, he obediently spread, spread them all out on the ground, his, his clothes, his books, his watch, even the goat that provided him with milk since chronic stomach problems kept him from drinking the local water. So he laid all these things out. To his dismay, the chief took his goat. In return, the chief gave him a carved stick, shaped like a walking stick, only curved at the top. Livingstone was really disappointed. In fact, it wasn't long before he was complaining to God about the tradition, this chief, and this ridiculous, useless walking stick. What could it ever do for him compared to the goat that kept him well and his digestive system working properly? Later, as they traveled along, one of the men explained to David, what you have been given is not an ordinary walking stick. It is the king's own scepter. And with it, you will find entrance to every village in our country. The king has honored you greatly. And sure enough, Central Africa was effectively opened up to David Livingstone and after him, waves of missionary and thousands of believers Thousands of people became believers in Christ. Sometimes, in our disappointment over what we don't have, we fail to appreciate, appreciate the significance of what we do have, what God has given to us. And according to Paul here in this passage, God has not just given us a walking stick or even a royal scepter, but the king himself who lives in us.
And you and I can do all things that God calls us to. We can do everything he puts before us. Every circumstance he lays out in our life. We can do all those things through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are not bound to the circumstances of our lives, nor are we tossed about by fate, but we are securely in your hands. You are the Lord of our lives. You are the Lord of our circumstances. And we come to you, Lord, knowing that our, our trust is in you and not what man shall do to us, not the circumstances in our life, but we look to you, the one who's in control of all of our circumstances, control of our life. We trust in you. And Lord, teach us to learn to draw our strength from you. You do strengthen us for all things. Uh, we need to learn these things. Help us to grow, Lord, that we might bring glory to you. Instead of fretting about things, we come to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. But also we would be content in all circumstances trusting you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.